yes, we stand for the reading of God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 through 26. So I hated life because what was done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil which I toil under the sun. See that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, but who knows whether he will be wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled under the, under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with much wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from which all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? While all his days are full of sorrow, his work is a vexation, even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can, apart from him, who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases God, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is indeed God's word. Amen. Go ahead and find your Bibles again and, and make your way back to Ecclesiastes 2. And let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are a God before whom we can be honest. Thank you that you are a God that we can carry the very real questions and doubts and frustration and pain of our hearts. And that we can trust you with it because you are at work. And you have proven that through Christ's work on the cross. Lord, as we think together about the brokenness of this world and how that shows up in our labor, uh, would you meet us this morning and give us your perspective? May your spirit speak to our hearts. May you give us eyes to see you and ears to hear and hearts that are eager to be changed by the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this summer, like uh, many New Englanders, we have uh, had the privilege of making our way to the beach on occasion, Uh, sometimes the town beach, sometimes the coast. Uh, But whenever we do that as a family, we invariably receive the request from one of our kids to build a sandcastle. It's just what you do when you go to the beach with little kids. And so they, they get to work with their buckets and, and filling them with sand and water and, and such. And sometimes when they're building the castle, the sand is too dry. You know, when we were at the town beach recently, uh, you know, I set up shop under the shade because I didn't want to you know, be baking out in the sun. And poor Eva is just hauling the bucket from the water's edge clear up the hill to make the sand castle. Felt kind of bad, but not really. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, but those... Those didn't turn out. That sand was way too dry. And then other times, you know, you're right on the water's edge and you try and pour it and and you pull the bucket off and the thing just melts because the sand is too wet. 
But sometimes the sand is great, and, and you're building tower after tower after tower, making the perfect sandcastle, except that it's never exactly what your child envisioned it would be like. And so, you know, and especially when, you know, one of the sisters gets in there and starts doing something to it that the other sister doesn't approve of, and you're trying to fix it, or some kid comes along and steps on it, and so on. And you might keep working at it, fix it. You might finally get it to look exactly like what your child envisioned. And then along comes the tide and washes the whole thing away. That is what work often feels like in a fallen world. Your job, my job. Sometimes what we're given to work with is simply insufficient for the task. Sometimes it's because of the choices that we made. The resources we chose, the decisions we made, were insufficient. Sometimes the competition comes and steps on us. And even when everything's working the way it's supposed to, and all cylinders are are firing correctly, what we produce often falls short of what we had envisioned, and then it's all gone. We die And the fruit of our labor goes to someone else. And who knows what they're going to do with it. During the month of August, we are talking about what we call the gospel at work. It's part of a bigger series that we've been looking at this year called the gospel for all of life. And so our goal has been to try and answer the somewhat big question of how does the the good news of Jesus That's what we mean by the word gospel, the good news of what Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection in our place. How does that apply to everyday life? Uh, We often talk about how the gospel applies to eternal life, to where we go when we die, to, to the state of our soul and our relationship with God. And it applies to that beautifully and wonderfully and in every way. But the gospel is so much bigger than just that. It applies to all of life. It literally changes everything, including our work. And so far we've seen is that, that when we look at it through the lens of the gospel, that work is a good thing. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that it's, it's not a curse. It's not a necessary evil that we just kind of have to grit it, our teeth and get through it and... and pray for the weekend to come sooner, nor is it an identity-giving Savior, something that we should worship and find our identity and satisfaction and peace in. Work is neither of those things. It's good as part of God's creational design and as a calling by God to participate in the flourishing of His creation. So it's a good thing. It's not a curse, but it's not a Savior. And work is rarely easy. Last week we talked about the temptation to measure our success at our jobs according to the abundance of our possessions and the incredible uh, temptation that that is, rather than measuring success according to our faithfulness to Christ, according to how am I loving God and loving others. That's a life well lived regardless of other results. But this morning what I want to do is drill a little bit deeper into the brokenness of our work today, which sounds a bit morbid and weird, but 
the reality is that, that we can talk about how the gospel helps us be better bosses or employees, and we'll talk about that next week. And we could talk about how you know, we can bring the gospel to bear in conversations at work, which we'll talk about the week after next. And we can talk about practical things like balancing work and life and church and that whole rat race, and we're going to get there eventually too. But if we do not understand that no matter how hard we try to do the right thing in our jobs, whether we're applying industry standards or spiritual standards, that it will not always go the way we want it to, and that there is a reason for that, and that God is at work in the midst of that, if we don't get that, then we will likely find ourselves discouraged and disillusioned, frustrated and bitter and cynical and even depressed, not just with our jobs, but with God himself. When what I thought would bring him pleasure and honor doesn't seem to make a difference in the nine-to-five life that I know. And so we need to talk about that. We need to take an honest look at that. And there is no better guide for this conversation than the preacher, who is also known as Ecclesiastes. Phil Riken describes Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on Monday morning. So... You know, a few years ago, we actually worked through this entire book uh, during our Sunday services, and I'm pretty sure there was a spike in Prozac prescriptions about the same time. This book is depressing because it's honest. It is raw. It, is, it, it's, uh, it asks the kinds of questions that we think that Christians aren't supposed to ask, and it wrestles with answers in ways that make many of us extremely uncomfortable. Can I say that? Can you say that out loud if you believe in God? The opening verse of the book, opening verses, tell us exactly what this book is about. The preacher, who is probably Solomon, poses his overarching question in chapter 1, verse 3. This is his quest here. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words... What the preacher sets out to discover in this book is whether there is any lasting gain in this rat race we call life. Will our work or our wisdom or anything else under the sun, as he puts it, will that amount to anything of lasting value when everything is said and done? That's his question. And when he uses the phrase under the sun, as he does there, uh, we need to understand that he's talking about the realm that we live in right here and right now, what we can see and experience day in and day out in this fallen world, the perspective at the horizontal level. Is there any real value to our work in this life that we know? And his prevailing conclusion both opens the book and closes the book as a repetition and then You know, he uses the word about 38 times in between, and it's not very pretty. His conclusion comes in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And the word that he translates vanity here is the Hebrew word for vapor. Uh, Some of your Bibles translate it as meaningless. 
It's the picture of trying to grab hold of a puff of smoke or a mist. Ever tried to do that? Ever tried to catch your breath on a cold morning? Kind of a pointless endeavor, isn't it? It doesn't stick around very long. There's no substance to actually take hold of. It disappears. It doesn't last. It doesn't amount to anything. And so it is that everything in this world that we try and take hold of in order to find lasting significance is ultimately fleeting and fruitless. Vanity of vanities. It doesn't last and it doesn't add up to much in the end. It is a striving after wind, as he calls it over and over again. Chasing the wind. There's a nice way to waste an afternoon. Chasing the wind. And that, of course, we might guess here, applies to our work as well. And Ecclesiastes shows us several ways that this is true of our work. Uh, First, our work is sometimes thwarted. We set out to do something, we make our plans, and they don't go the way we want for various reasons. Uh, Listen to chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Now, it's estimated that nine out of ten startup companies fail. That's terrifying if you're an entrepreneur or venture capitalist or something. Nine out of ten. I mean, you... You identify your product or, or your market and your research and, and, and you recruit your investors and then the competitor beats you to market. Or you find out there never was a market for this product in the first place. And, and you've spent three years giving yourself to something that ends up leaving you nothing to show for. That's vanity. That's a striving after wind. Our work is often thwarted. Uh, our positions are outsourced, or you know, our, our, our company downsizes, or right sizes, or cap sizes, or whatever it does, and we find ourselves unemployed. We spend the entire day hauling sand and shaping our castle, and some kid comes along and just kicks it down. Our work is often thwarted in this life. But even if it's not thwarted, It's never finished. Most of you are going to get up tomorrow morning and do the exact same thing you did last Monday morning when you woke up. The exact same thing you did the week before that and and the same thing that you're going to do a week from tomorrow morning. Over and over and over again. And Ecclesiastes illustrates that in chapter 1, verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The sun's work is never done. Never gets to go on break, take a vacation. The wind blows to the south and goes around in the north and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. The wind never gets done with its task. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Ever think of that? All the the work and labor of taking all of the rain and the snow melt and all that and moving it clear down to the sea, and the sea never gets full. It's just always going. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. 
the eyes not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. Our work is never finished. And this tireless, never-ending work is often misguided. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is a vanity and a striving after wind. Our motives get corrupt. I talked a little bit about that last week. Or sometimes our work is isolating. It cuts us off from those we love and from the people that really matter to us. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling in depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Our work can isolate us, cut us off. But even when our work goes well, it ultimately fails to satisfy. The castle's never quite what we envisioned when we started building. It's never enough, you know, whether it's what the artist envisioned for her song or her painting or what the entrepreneur envisioned for her business. Success never quite really satisfies us. You see that in chapter 5, 10 through 11. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Well, there goes my money. It's kind of what it's like. Which then makes our work rather pointless at the end of the day, doesn't it? If it's frustrating and if it's not satisfying and if it's often corrupted and isolating and never-ending, what's the point? That's what the preacher concludes in chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. But he's not finished. The meaninglessness of work under the sun is only amplified when you add death to the equation. Eventually, the tide comes in and sweeps it all away. Chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And even if, against all odds, you finish your life's labor with joy and satisfaction and having completed what you set out to do, we have no control over what happens to all of that once we're gone. Whether the next child will add to the sandcastle or tear the whole thing down and start over. And that fact drives the preacher to utter despair in chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. You know, how many stories have been told about, you know, a company or a corporate empire built up by mom and dad only to be burned to the ground by Junior when he takes over? And, you know, again, that it doesn't matter what your work is. This is a common experience, whatever you spend your time laboring at. You know, four years of hard work in high school sports earns a plaque on the wall with your name on it and your high school record, only to be replaced by someone faster or stronger and younger than you down the road. The degree you spend half a decade pursuing, all A's, all that stuff, and it can barely get you an entry-level job. The dream house you saved half of your life to build becomes a teardown for somebody else's dream house. The preacher summarizes, and if we're honest, we resonate with it in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Work does not always go the way we want it to go. And notice, throughout Ecclesiastes, there's no real distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous when it comes to this experience. There is when you step back and look at the eternal perspective, but when it comes to what we experience day in and day out, right here, right now under the sun, What you believe about God doesn't really impact whether or not your business will succeed or fail or you will get laid off or fired or whatever. We need to wrestle with that as Christians. How do we make sense of when our work doesn't actually work? Well, there is a reason for this pervasive experience. And we find it clear back in the beginning of Genesis. Now, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 a couple weeks ago when we talked about the purpose of work and how God gave us work as part of his creational design, how God himself introduces himself to us as one who is at work, creating and and so on. And he invites us to join him in that work, to participate in the flourishing of his creation. But we also noted that something went dreadfully wrong in the beginning and that that uh, affected our work as well. And that's what I want to look at again as we think about Ecclesiastes. So so keep your thumb in Ecclesiastes, but if, if you don't mind, go ahead and turn to Genesis 3 with me. The root of our fruitless labor. When God made Adam and Eve in his image... And he called them to join him 
in his work, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image, to bring all of creation under his rule and reign, to to work the garden and to keep it. When, When God created the world like this, everything was the way it was supposed to be. It was integrated. Relationships were healthy and intact between God and people and between Adam and Eve. God was present with his people. They trusted his rule and obeyed him. Work was a joyful act of worship. Adam's work in the garden was his service of worship to God. The newborn world was filled with love. And all of that changed when Adam and Eve, at the serpent's temptation, decided to trust themselves instead of their maker. They doubted God's goodness and decided that they would do a better job deciding right from wrong. And so they took from the only tree in the garden that was off limits to them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that day they died. Not immediately, but everything that was once held together by love was separated now and severed by sin. What was designed to be a blessing to Adam and to all humanity was now under God's righteous and holy curse. It's interesting, if you look at and compare the judgment God lays out in chapter 3 relative to what he designed for creation in chapters 1 and 2, you hear several echoes there. God united Adam and Eve in marriage and called them to be fruitful and multiply. He now says to the woman in Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What was designed for a blessing becomes hard. God called Adam and Eve to rule and subdue, placed Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. He then says, to the man in chapter 3, 17 to 19, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you, will, you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There is a reason that our work doesn't always work. That it's often frustrating and fruitless. It is a result of human sin. And the entire creational fabric having been stained and unraveled in those early moments of human history. Tim Keller explains, God ties the pain of love and marriage and the pain of work very closely together in these verses. Both childbearing and farming are now called painful labor. Work exists now in a world sustained by God, but disordered by sin. The world we live in is sustained by God, but it's disordered by sin. And when we read these words in Genesis... Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. 
when we read those words, we know this is not just some ancient superstitious explanation. This is our story. This is our experience. We feel it in our bones and sometimes in our pocketbooks. Work is hard and it doesn't always go the way we want. And no one is immune from the effects of the fall in our day-to-day labor. And so how do we respond to that? If that's true that we experience this and there's a reason for it, what then do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, we could respond like the preacher does in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes and hate life. Give our hearts over to despair, become bitter, cynical. Never make a sandcastle again, I'm done. Or maybe we respond by doubling our resolve and working twice as hard to make our work work for us. Even then, the tide is still coming. Maybe we conclude that we're doing the wrong kind of work. Maybe that's the problem here. That I need a change in company or a change in my career. If, If only I had a different job, this wouldn't be so frustrating. Said every person who's ever had a job. Maybe we just tighten our belt, grit our teeth, and put a good face on it. Kind of fake our smile through life until it's over. Pretend it's not so bad. What can we do under the sun to find joy and lasting gain in our labor? The answer is nothing. If this is all that there is. If all that there is is what we see and experience here and now under the sun, this horizontal perspective, then there is nothing that we can do to change this. What we need is an above-the-sun perspective on our life and our work. We need to see our work from God's viewpoint. And one of the surprising things about Ecclesiastes is that it's not only honest about how messed up life is in this world, But every now and then, the clouds break and the preacher lifts our gaze above the sun to see things from a new angle. It's like the the scene in The Lord of the Rings when Sam and Frodo are in Mordor and they're on their way to Mount Doom to destroy the ring and they are suffocating in the darkness and the fruitlessness of their quest. The mountain is too far away. They have no water, no food, No strength left. Worse than that, they have no hope. They are chasing after the wind. But there's this split second when Sam's lying there awake and he can't sleep as he's looking up at the oppressive sky when the clouds break. It's the most beautiful scene in the book, in my opinion. There, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light 
and high beauty forever beyond its reach. If all there is is what we can see and experience here and now, there's no point to our work or anything else in life. But just when we're about to give up, the clouds break and the preacher shows us that there is a kingdom above that is so beautiful. There is a God at work whose work can never be touched by the vain darkness that we call home. And he reminds us of that in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity in striving after wind. Now, it's tempting to read those verses as kind of a, a, a carpe diem, seize the day kind of mentality that says, well, since we're going to die soon anyway, we, at least we can have fun now or enjoy you know, what we've got. Kind of an escapism. Uh, or even tempting to see it that, as though what he's suggesting here is just try and find joy in the little things in life. That, that'll take your mind off the bigger questions that you can't answer. But I don't think that's what he's after at all. The preacher is talking about real joy. Lasting joy. A joy that is found not outside of this world, but actually smack dab in the midst of the vanity we experience. A joy that lifts the heart and lightens the step. A joy that comes from God himself. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Or again in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, he says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So how do we spend, how do we respond to the relentless trouble of work in our life? The preacher's answer after this whole whirlwind tour he's taken us on, is to enjoy it. To enjoy it. To take pleasure in your fruitless toil. As one author clarifies, the gift of God here does not make the meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes the vanity enjoyable. What does that look like? How do I enjoy it? Well, first, it means that we really have to take seriously the truth that we have a sovereign God. It requires resting in a sovereign God. When we operate in an under-the-sun perspective, as though this is all there is, there is no rest. We saw that in verse 23. There's no rest at the end of the day from his labor. But our God is the God who made the heavens and the earth and then rested on the seventh day. And we can rest in him. We can rest knowing that no matter how dark it gets here on earth, God's rule above is untouchable. 
by this vanity. We can rest knowing that behind this inscrutable vanity we call life, there is a sovereign and wise God calling the shots. As chapter 3, verse 11 puts it, He has made everything beautiful, fitting, appropriate in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So so though from our vantage point, we can't make out everything that God is doing and why. We can't see how all of the threads connect from beginning to end. We can be confident that he is at work in every detail of it. That much we can see. From the cluttered inbox to the sales spreadsheet to the Hundreds of pages you have to read for a class that you won't remember when you show up to. All of his purposes. He's at work in all of those things. And his purposes will triumph in the end. Which is not an excuse for laziness, but a call to humility and faith. And if that's true, that our sovereign God is at work in and over the vanity then it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if we see the fruit of our labor. The question is whether God sees it and what God does with it. We can enjoy the labor itself and leave the results in God's hands. And that's the second aspect of enjoying our vanity. Take joy in the labor itself, in the work itself, not just the results. When our joy is bound up in the fruit of our labor, when it's tied to our circumstances, then our joy will only last as long as we can outperform the competition. Our security is only as strong as our least committed investor on the project. And there's no rest or joy in that. But if our joy is in God himself, and what he has done to redeem us from our sin through Christ's redemptive work on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection in our place as our Savior. If that's where my joy is, I'm free to enjoy my work regardless of whether I have anything to show for it at the end of the day. It's fun to make sandcastles even if they don't last. The point here is not that our work no longer matters, but that Jesus is sovereign over the results. And that frees us to find pleasure in the otherwise meaningless aspects of life. Eating, drinking, washing dishes, mowing the lawn, crunching numbers, grading papers, studying for tests, waiting in the airport terminal, bathing dirty kids, again, sitting in traffic, again, There's joy in that. It also means, as Keller reminds us, that uh, just because you cannot realize your highest aspirations in work does not mean that you've chosen wrongly or are not called to your profession or that you should spend your life looking for the perfect career that is devoid of frustration. That would be a fruitless search for anyone. You should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you may be in exactly the right vocation. But you should also expect, if God is your God, to find joy in your labor, despite the frustrations. To even laugh at the ridiculousness 
when the day falls apart. Our work is never quite done and rarely amounts to all that we hoped it would be. But because Jesus' work for us is finished, our hope is secure, His Spirit is present, and whatever work we do under the sun can be offered to God as a joyful act of worship, trusting Him to take care of the results. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do come before you in humility and faith. Lord, we recognize that that our hands really are tied in so much of what we spend our time doing. And that our hopes really are often misplaced when we trust in the fruit of our labor instead of the finished work of Christ. But Lord, would you give us your perspective on these things? Would you lift our eyes above the sun to see our life's work in light of the big story that you're telling, the story that centers on Jesus? And may we find hope to do good work, regardless of the results, for the sake of your name and to enjoy it while we do it, knowing that you are sovereignly and graciously at work over it all. And Lord, that takes faith. We need your spirit to fill us with faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.